Amen. Well, we are looking at soteriology again. I believe this is our number eight. So we're looking at the call. Um, So let's go in our Bibles to Romans chapter 8, verse 28 through 30 we'll read, and that'll set us on our course. Romans 8, 28 to 30, thinking about the call as it's related to salvation. Romans 8. Remember our outline, we did our introduction, and then right now we're still under point number two, prior to the salvific moment, and we've got, um, we might be going a little bit out of order, um, because we've got two more things um, to finish for prior to the salvific moment, those being the atonement and the propitiation. We'll deal with those probably together, but essentially the work of Christ such that he purchased um, salvation. So we do have those before we get to number three at the salvific moment, but we're working on the call this morning because it grows out of predestination, what we looked at last week. So we've done that forbearance, how God is patient with us and did not immediately destroy us as we would have deserved his foreknowledge, how God foreknew those whom he would elect. So we then dealt with election, the choice of God. And then we talked about predestination. Now this morning we're looking at call. So fun stuff. Um, Romans 8, let's read verses 28 through 30. Would anyone like to read those for us? Go ahead, Diana. Romans 8. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestine to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, then he also justified. And when he justified, then he also glorified. Amen. So then his application that he gives in the next several verses is that nothing, no one, could separate us from the love of God in Christ. But you notice, hopefully, the word called comes up in verses 28 and 30. Um, God works all things together for good to those who love him, to those who are the called according to his purpose. So then he talked about how it starts with God's foreknowledge, the ones whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Um, And then the ones whom he predestinated, those he also called. And then calling leads to justification, and justification leads to glorification. But our question, our quandary this morning is to... Try to understand what does Paul mean when he uses this word, those whom he predestined, he called. What is it, what is the calling of God? Um, It's a Greek word, kaleo. Um, That's an easy one to remember because it's just like our English word. So it's used in a bunch of different ways. So I started out, I gave you a ton of information. um, These, so you have six pages worth. We won't talk about all of it. That's. You can study it more if you want. But since I had listed out all these verses, I wanted to give it to you. So we've got our word studies. Kaleo is the verb. 
We've got kletos is the adjective, klesis is the noun, and then um, somewhere in here, I've got a comment just on the Greek word ekklesia, which is another related word. So we'll talk about that as we get there. But starting out with kaleo, this is the verb. Um, it appears 148 times in the Greek New Testament, and it's often used just in a generic sense, much like our English verb to call or to invite. Um, it's used uh, often of people calling the name of someone. So Matthew 1, when the angel appears and tells them that they're to call their son's name Jesus. Then he also says, and he would be called Emmanuel. Well, that's the Greek word there. Um, Mark 1.20, it's used when Jesus is calling his disciples. He's summoning them. That one in Mark 1.20 is James and John. He calls them while they're working on their father's ship. Um, John 1.42, Jesus told Simon that he would now be called Cephas, which means Peter. So these are some of the ways that this word is used just in a generic sense. Yeah, so kaleo, just like that. Call me. Um, John 2.2 gives us an example of how it's used of like an invitation, an official invitation to something. John 2.2 says, And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. It's sort of like our wedding invitation today. We send them out, and unless you got a wedding invitation, you're not allowed to come to the wedding. But I feel like our calling is more like this last one in John 2, 2. We've been invited as a guest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> more than that, even as a child. Yeah. And that's, we get several. We get a couple parables that use it in that way, speaking of salvation, and then Revelation does the same thing. It's fascinating. So those are some of the ways it's used just in a generic sense, but then it is used in a, in a number of spiritual contexts, and I give you the list there. Um, a lot of them have to do with salvation, not all of them do. For instance, Romans 4.17, let's go over there to see it in a, salva- in a spiritual context that's not a salvation sense. Romans 4.17. Yeah, so back it up to verse 16. He's talking in the context about the faith of Abraham and how it was imputed to him for righteousness apart from circumcision. But then he receives the sign of circumcision, which was a seal of righteousness, an outward manifestation of the inward righteousness that Abraham already had through faith. So verse 16, pick it up. Therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace. To the end, the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So he's making the point that the seed of Abraham is not just people who are physical descendants of him, but specifically here he's saying all those who believe the gospel, those are the seed of Abraham because we follow in the footsteps of the faith of Abraham. Verse 17, as it's written, I have made you a father of many nations. Before him whom he believed, even God, who quickens the dead and calls those things which be not as though they were. So the meaning of that 
People debate it back and forth. What it means is it speaking of God's creation at the beginning, how he called those things which did not previously exist and now they exist. Is it that he names those things? Is it speaking of God's work of salvation in the heart of an unregenerate person such that faith which was not there is now there? You can think through what that means, but it's a related concept, whether it's the same exact um, salvation call, you can, you can think on that. But that's one. Um, a lot of the... Go ahead. I just want to interject. I remember years ago when I said, well, we're the seed of Abraham since we're believers. And this poor Christian man just about fell apart. He said, you don't know what you're talking about. Blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'll just shut my mouth. But it's amazing if people do not realize that we're the seed of Abraham. Yeah. That's right. And thank God that we are. Amen. Um, Most of the other ones relate with this calling of God as it relates to salvation. So we could go, since we're in Romans, let's go over to Romans 11.29 to get another one that you can think through how it's being used. <clears throat> I'm way down now, sorry. Now I'm down under Clasis, the noun. I skipped a bunch. So this one's on the tail end of uh, Paul's discussion of why he's demonstrating that God has not cast off his people Israel, but that they have temporarily been um, that they have been temporarily cut out and the Gentiles grafted in. Hey Gabriel. We're on we're on page three, Gabe. Under Clasis noun, Romans eleven twenty nine is where we're at. So it's on the tail end of this. Um, so Paul's talking through that. Um, 26, well, 25. For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. So God has worked this blindness for Israel so that we as Gentiles can enjoy the blessings of salvation as well. Verse 26, and so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. And we understand that because the Jews largely opposed Paul's ministry and this ministry of this first generation of Christians in proclaiming the gospel. So they're enemies as touching the gospel, but as touching the the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. In other words, they are still God's chosen, beloved people. Verse 29, for the gifts and calling of God are without repentance, or they're irrevocable. So whatever that's getting at, Paul's point is, God has not gone back on his word to Israel. His election of Israel as his chosen nation has not been revoked. And he demonstrates that by saying, the gifts and calling of God are without repentance, or they're irrevocable. And we're still talking about those who are being saved. So this one is enough, this is one you have to think through how exactly it's being used. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is that a salvific sense? 
is it the sense of how God called the nation of Israel to himself? Is it just a generic all of the calling that God does in the various different ways? He doesn't turn away from that. Right. I think if you read through Romans 9 to 11, Paul makes it very clear that the ones who don't, who reject God's gospel through Christ, yeah. they're not saved. So I can refer to this as a nation in my mind. Yeah, <laughs> correct. Yep. So those are some of the ones that you can think on what exactly, how exactly it's been being used. Let's do, well, let me watch my time. Let's do one more. Philippians 3, which is also here under Clasis, about halfway down. Philippians 3.14. The beginning of chapter 3, Paul has talked about how Um, If anyone can have confidence in the flesh, Paul can have more because he was um, the, the pinnacle of what a Jew should be. But then he says that all that he counts as rubbish, as dung, um, that he may know Christ. So then you jump down to verse 14. Well, verse 13 for the... 12 for the context. Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after. If that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling or the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So, Paul says, I haven't already attained. As Christ-like as Paul was, and as we read his letters and see his life, we're like, wow, if only we could be like the Apostle Paul. But Paul says, I had not yet attained. I haven't apprehended yet. And he says, I'm striving, I'm following after, so that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. That's kind of a funny way to say it. What's he, what's he getting at there? Any thoughts? I'm sorry, could you repeat what you said? You're good. Verse 12. Paul says, I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. What's he getting at? What's he mean when he says that? Does the question make sense? Brother one. Yeah, please do. It, it makes it a little easier, doesn't it? Yeah. Not that I have already obtained it. Louder. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ. 
Yeah, ex- that's exactly it. So he says, Christ has made me his own. He's laid hold of me. But I am striving that I may lay hold of it. So we didn't read verse 11, which is why we're struggling. He says that he wants to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Verse 11, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. That's his goal. He's looking forward to the resurrection. And he says, I haven't attained it yet. I'm not perfect yet. I'm not perfectly Christ-like yet, but that's the goal. So Christ has made me his own, so now I'm striving toward that goal. But then in that context, that's where he says, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So how exactly he's using calling, that's, that's what you have to think about. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. So he's obviously using an athletic metaphor, pressing toward the mark for the prize. You've got to get to the finish line before you can be awarded. But the prize is this upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And I think of high means it's really something so rare and special as a, mm-hmm. as a prize, as a reward. Not that it's just from heaven and an upward calling to go to heaven. It's the highest thing you can get. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. So that's a fun one to think about. But then let's look, page four. Let's think about some salvation, salvific calling. <clears throat> I did. Hopefully that helps. Good. What we'll have to figure out, though, is how to number the next one. If it starts back at one, or if it has to go seven. Theology by God. <laughs> Please don't call it by Daniel. Oh, that's funny. That's true. That would work. Yes, that... Keep it simple, the KISS principle. So this is our outline of how we want to look at that. I gave us instances. It should say instances on the slide. Instances of the salvific calling. So what I did was I just combed through the list of all those references, the 148 times that kala'o is used, and the other ones. So just a note on the word studies. Kala'o, the verb, that does not have all the uses in the scripture. That's only the spiritual context ones. But then kletos, the adjective, and klesis, the noun, those do list all of the times it appears in the New Testament for what it's worth. So then I just combed through those references and pulled out the ones that specifically re- relate to the salvific calling. Then we'll look at the goals that the scripture gives us of this salvific calling. We'll look at the subject of the salvific calling, in other words, the one performing the call, and then the meaning. We'll think about the meaning of what it is. We all together so far? Thoughts, comments, observations? All right, then let's pick it up at the top of page four. Um, 
we get several times where it's used in the Gospels. Matthew 9 and Luke 5 are related instances. Let's go to Luke 5, verse 32. Representative of the way that Christ uses it. And recall at the end of our last hour, we did look at... um, We did look at Matthew 22. Remember the parable of the wedding feast where the the host invited guests. Those guests declined the invitation. And so then he invited everyone, all all that his servants could find. They were invited. But at the end, someone comes in and he doesn't have on a wedding wedding gown. And so he's thrown out into outer darkness. And Jesus makes the comment, for many are called, but few are chosen. So don't forget that one that we talked about. But Luke 5.32, who wants to read? Read verses 31 and 32 for us. Who's got that one? Uh, Jesus answered them, So Jesus makes a pretty apparent point. People who are whole or well, they don't need a doctor. The sick are the ones who need the doctor. Jesus says, likewise, I came not to call the righteous, or maybe we might think the self-righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Jesus says, I'm coming to call. He's making a call. And we get the idea that this is an invitation that's open to all. Jesus didn't... um, He didn't play favorites in whom he proclaimed the kingdom of God to, but many rejected it, like the Pharisees, for instance. He was talking to scribes and Pharisees at that time. Yeah, yep. And yet at the same time, we have someone like Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a high Pharisee, who does respond positively to the gospel call eventually. Mm -hmm. I was just thinking about that from a human perspective. Is that God calls, extends an invitation, and we have a choice to accept it or not accept it as well. Um, We've had parties at our house and we've invited people, and after the second time I get to know, you sort of get the feeling they don't want to come to our house for a party (laughs) or maybe a date. You know, after you ask the girl twice, you say, okay. Hope you guys are taking notes, you single young men. Two no's means a no. (laughs) Yeah, which is interesting. Which means that you've had the choice, you've had the opportunity, you've been invited. Mm -hmm. People reject Christ. I didn't. I don't know if he'll do it two times. Maybe he has a more gracious one than we do. Yeah. But humanly, after a couple of times, it didn't take the third time. If you're really thick, it might take three. That's funny. I think that's a good illustration of it. Yeah. Hmm. So some more instances. What's interesting is Paul is the primary one to use call in this, this, this salvific sense. Because Jesus said he came to call the righteous, not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. But everyone whom Jesus issued the invitation or proclaimed the kingdom of God to, not all of them were saved. You follow that? 
It's just like not everyone that we proclaim the gospel to, not all of them trust Christ, or not right away. But then Paul, he narrows the way in which calling is used. Um, And we'll see that as we walk through. But Paul uses called specifically in reference to ones who are saved as a result of it. And we'll look at that in the meaning later. I'll try not to steal our thunder for then. But let's build the case ahead of time. So let's start back in Romans. He uses it quite a few times in Romans as well as 1 Corinthians. So we'll look at both of those. Um, Romans 1, to start out with. Romans 1, 6. You're good. So it's in the introduction of the book. Paul has just said he's talked of himself. He says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. That's our word, called. Um, That one's the adjective. He was called to be an apostle, a called apostle. And for Paul, it's interesting because his salvation call and his apostolic call were synonymous. They happened at the same time. When Paul was saved, he also then received this calling um, as an apostle of Christ. So then he talks down through that. He says he's separated under the gospel of God, and then he belabors the point of this gospel of God. He talks about what it is in short, but then drop to verse 6. Among whom, speaking of the nations, among whom are you also the called of Jesus Christ? To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. No one's going to make the argument that Paul wrote the letter of Romans to all the people, both saved and unsaved, in the city of Rome. It's very clear. It's being written to those who are called to be saints there in verse 7. It's written to people who already know the gospel. They've already believed the gospel. And yet it says, Paul says they are called. Among these nations, they're called. And they've been called to be saints. Sure. Just for clarification. An apostle is someone who has seen Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Paul actually saw Jesus Christ when he was taught supposedly three years under Christ's tutors. Am I correct? In, in yeah. Yeah. So there's some people might try to say, because there are times when apostles are used of some other people. Mm-hmm. But there's the verb apostello means to send. So an apostle is someone who is sent. So in a generic sense, God has sent us all. But in the technical sense, an apostle was one who had what we might call power of attorney. They were an authoritative spokesperson on behalf of Christ. Yeah. Good. Amen. Some people say missionaries are apostles. They do. You need to refer to the apostles to the Philippines or yeah. Because they're sent, they have the authority of the cross. Yeah. And the difference, because I agree that in the non-technical sense, like a missionary is an apostle and they've been sent, just in the sense of that Greek word. But with the theological sense we get through the rest of the scripture, they don't have the authority to speak on Christ's behalf. In other words, to write scripture. They can only say, thus saith the Lord, because it's recorded in scripture. Yeah. Because it's already been said. 
Yeah. It's interesting. Okay, so then we just looked at Romans 8, 28, and 30, where call comes as a result of predestination, and it eventuates in justification and glorification. Can I come back up one second? Please. Um, there are denominations or groups that would disagree with you on that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, that uh, they did not, that those apostles who were not, uh, you know, from the Bible, may speak on behalf of God. Uh, I think the uh, Pope would disagree with you. He would, probably. Yep. Because he believes he has authority, the power of attorney, whatever you call it, to speak on behalf of God, which has an equivalency to uh, not replace the scripture, but alongside the scripture. Um, the, the leaders of the Mormon Church would, would disagree with you on this. Yep. And there's other denominations and groups that say the same thing. So, so we recognize that there's some contention on that concept. Yep. Yep, you're exactly right. There is some contention. And that's why we need to know about it. We need to know the word. As a Christian, the word is by authority. Amen. I can speak with all kinds of authority if I'm quoting the scripture. That's right. Except in the house. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) That's funny. So down in verses Romans 8, 28 through 30, we just read it, but... He says, those whom God foreknew, he also did predestine. Those whom he predestinated, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. So in this way that Paul uses the word calling, there's no such thing as someone who has been called who will also not be justified and glorified. Does that make sense? So calling eventuates in salvation and glorification. Whereas Jesus was using it in a different sense, where he says, I've not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. So it's a general call that he's issuing to everyone, an invitation to come to Christ to be saved. So then Romans 9, Paul uses it several times again, just Flip your page over there. Um, verse 11 is the first time in chapter 9. He's Once again, he's talking through how the seed of Abraham would be called through Isaac. Um, but verse 11, for the children being not yet born, now speaking of the, the twins in Rebekah's womb, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. So God said, God is the one who calls. And it's paired there with election, his purpose. Then drop down to verse 24 is the next usage. This is right after what we looked at last week and discussed double predestination. Um... If you remember that, the vessels of wrath fitted for destruction in verse 22 and verse 23, these vessels of mercy. But we made the point that God did not predestine or um, before the foundations of the world, God did not destine someone to go to hell. 
Instead, it was their own choices through suppression of the truth and unrighteousness, according to Romans 1.18, that they were fitted for destruction. So that's the context. Um, verse 23, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory, even us, whom he has called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. As he says also in Osi, I will call them my people, which were not my people, and her beloved, which was not my beloved. So, O.C., is that Hosea? Does that sound about right? How's your Nasby say it? Does it say Hosea? Hosea. Yeah, O.C. That's a fun way to, that's a fun one. Hosea. So, remember that. Um, Hosea, he was, God told him as a prophet to marry Gomer, this prostitute, and to love her. And Hosea did a really good job of loving her faithfully. And then Gomer, she keeps having kids. They have one kid, and that's probably Hosea's son. Then they have another, and it's like, hmm, that's probably not Hosea's son. And then the last one is actually called Not My People. And it's a metaphor for how God is saying, you, Israel, are not my people because you have forsaken me. Remember that? So Paul quotes that. So verse 24, we see God is the one who is called not just Jews but Gentiles also. And then he calls them his people. Who are not his people. May I ask you a silly question? Sure. When Jesus comes back, I mentioned this passage of Warren the other day. When Jesus comes back, there will be people or women who will be just pregnant, mm-hmm. just conceived. There will be those who are in the process of pregnancy and those who are giving birth. I mean, that's not going to stop when Jesus comes back. Yeah. Do you think those, because they are Support that those babies if, be, are being mm-hmm. called and, and in the womb being called, and those at the moment of birth when Jesus comes back are being called. Yeah. Or infants, maybe. So you're specifically asking about in the end times, like when people will end up being destroyed? Yeah. I'm talking about when Jesus comes back. It's mm-hmm. in the wrath of God. Okay. So with the destruction on earth, those babies end up dying. So the question is. Were they called? Did they go to heaven? Is that kind of what you're asking? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that's assuming that you and I have the same prophet when Jesus comes back. Also true. Also true. So, and that's a good question. Um, yes, I do think that there's a case to be made scripturally. It's debated. But I do think there's a case to be made scripturally that infants who pass um, do go to heaven. But... That's actually one of our key questions we want to discuss. Oh. It's coming up probably in. Um, oh, you're okay. It's coming up probably in number four, following the salvific moment, or maybe oh, in number three at the salvific moment. Candace? Well, to piggyback off of that, I literally just had this thought the other day about the children that rise up against Jesus still after the thousand years or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, are all of those children? 
going to go rise up against Jesus, or is it certain ones that are? Or will they be like, called in some? Yeah, way? do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, is I that kind of what you mean? Well, yeah, but I'm thinking more. Again. Are you thinking about in that moment Jesus comes and there are babies in the womb? Uh-huh. But like I was thinking about the, the children of wrath. The children that are born during that time of the thousand years. Mm-hmm. Um, like, is it their calling to rise up? Like, I don't think God would call them to to I, I want to say sin, but we won't. Like, I don't know. See, you get into discussions of the Holy Spirit still being present or not present on earth at that time, still doing the work or not doing the work, and how evil are the people, and therefore they're not called. Yeah, like the, the Holy whole Spirit's point is to show that we would still rise up against yeah, God, God, and not that he would call us to do that, but like that we would just naturally do that. But it's like those children born at that time, will there be children that choose to not? It does make sense. Yeah, we could go and read like Revelation 19 to 22 and think about that. Mm-hmm. So children born, your question, Candace, is children born during the millennium, yes. do some of them choose, obviously we see some of them choose to rise up against Christ and to try to go to war against him right. with Satan. But then are there some others who choose to trust right. King Jesus? Right. And if you go and read it, yeah, it does seem so. That some of them choose to follow Christ. A minority, maybe if you will, choose to fight against Christ. But we can, these are good questions. We've always got lots of eschatological questions, don't we? We will get there, Lord willing. It's gonna, he comes. <laughs> that's right, Lord willing before he comes. This is our seventh doctrine, or eighth. Yeah, eighth, sorry. We've got, once we finish soteriology, we'll do ecclesiology, which is the study of the church, and then we'll go to eschatology, the study of the end times. Brother Warren? This, this question these guys are talking, these ladies, excuse me, Thank you. are talking about, it raises another question, which is a harder problem, the question of God's judgment, because throughout the Old Testament, you see situations where God judges people, and he says, go in and kill them all. Kill the babies and the adults and the children and the old grandmas and men and women. And so his judgment may fall on those who, have they been called? Or have they been, are they just neglected? Or is it just sent to the parents or neglected on the children? That's interesting mm-hmm. questions. It is. It's a difficult question as well. Yep. To be compassionate and think about those things. Yep. I do rest, though, because I agree. There are children who end up, who have not yet made a conscious choice to rebel against God, who have experienced God's wrath being outpoured in history. Sodom and Gomorrah, Nineveh, etc. Even God's own people. When Israel and Judah were destroyed, there were children destroyed. Um, But I do rest in what God said back in Genesis, where Abraham um, is appealing to God that if there was even five, ten righteous in the cities, 
to spare him. And he makes the comment, he says, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? It far be it from you to destroy the righteous along with the wicked. So the children are righteous if they get destroyed. So that, that's, that's what you have to think through. I do agree. It's a difficult question. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, yeah. I think it kind of goes back to God knows our hearts before we even know like, what's going to happen in our future. And so I think, you know, maybe God knew that, like, say, Sodom and Gomorrah, for instance, and those children growing up in those communities, they're going to grow up. But here's where I have a hard time because it's like, I know God gives children to certain people, like for to every parent for a purpose. Mm-hmm. It's like why why did He give those specific children to the parents of Sodom and Gomorrah, or like why is He giving children to people in um, other religions? Like obviously, I don't I don't know. I just have a hard time reasoning that out <coughs> in my mind, like. Why did God give my children to me, and now they can grow up learning about Christianity versus someone being born into a Mormon family? Or, you know, like, I know God has a plan for their entire life and future, and maybe someone will come into their life, and, you know, there's a whole plan for that, but it's like, why, like, I I just don't, I, I don't feel like that's fair, but also... You know what I'm saying? Like, God obviously is, is fair. the most fair person, you know, but it's just like, I just have a hard time reasoning that out. You have, first you have to deal with a larger scope and then come back to the once you've got the scope. If you have the scope, <coughs> you have a framework to deal with it. If you don't have and a I large scope. I think she's asking yeah. for what is the scope so that she can deal with that yeah. question. Yeah. What is the scope? Yeah. Well, and it's interesting. So, like, <coughs> assuming God gives these children, which he does, but also it comes through free will, procreation. So there's, God did not necessarily say such and such a person is only going to be able to hear um, a false religion. I'm going to purposely put them in a family where they'll end up condemned. But at the same time, I think the book of Romans actually gives a really good argument for, or a really good answer for that in chapters 1 through 3. That even the people who were born outside of Judaism, God still gave them creation through which his eternal power um, and the Godhead are seen, and he gave them a conscience to know right from wrong. And it seems that those who positively respond to God's general revelation through creation and conscience, that then they receive some form of special revelation. So take Rahab, for instance, a Canaanite, a wicked prostitute in the city of Jericho, and yet she sees what God is doing just the same as all of her Jerichoans. They reject and they end up destroyed. But Rahab says, Yahweh is the one true God. Not only is he powerful, but I pledge my allegiance to him. And God rescues her, and she ends up being part of the lineage of Messiah. So that's how I work through it is, 
that God has made it readily available to all, that when they respond positively to the truth that they see revealed through creation, conscience, and history, then God gives them special revelation such that they can be saved. That's such a good thing you just said. Did you hear what you said? If you put your faith in God, God rescues you regardless of your circumstances. That's right. Amen. Did you hear him say that? That was great. Praise the Lord. That's something to remind our hearts of. Mm -hmm. I was just thinking of other words like you said, they don't have a choice. Or they're not, they haven't not come to that point of realizing they need to make a choice. Yep. That some little kids I've known for years of age, and then so Jesus filled, it's just unbelievable. I don't know where we'll end up later on. Yeah. But to me, the, I, the, when I first read the song, Vash, they're little ones against the rock. And yeah. It's like, well, then they're going to heaven, aren't they? Because God is just going to take those who've not done good or evil yet. But that's such a, a general frosting on everything. Well, that's his predestination. They're predestined. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and it's interesting because I have a good friend who actually tried to make that argument to me. He said, I don't think babies go to heaven when they die because only if they were predestined do they. And I don't know that. So, oh, boy, that's a Try sharing that with a mother who's lost a child. It's not going to be a very comforting solution. But we will save that discussion 